This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. And by now, you probably know I love screenwriters and the challenges that they face. Today, I have the chance to talk with one of the greats. His credits include Arachnophobia, Batman Returns, and the Martin Scorsese remake of Cape Fear. He talks about collaborating with Tim Burton, the infamous Superman Live script, and his early days as a rock writer for Rolling Stone magazine. Stick around for a screenwriter that has no fear, Wesley Strick. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to find out about you. I've looked at your credits and I realized I have seen a lot of your work. You are known in the psychological area, sort of psychological thrillers and multidimensional characters. So I guess my big curiosity is, did you have any kind of study in psychology or is it all your own fantasies as a writer? It's, I'm glad you used the word fantasies because, yes, that's exactly what it is. I mean, I, I was an English major in college, and I did do creative writing courses in college. But the storytelling bug, I guess, came out of my sort of eight-year-old fantasy world, I would say, and kind of cohering around, the, specifically around The Twilight Zone, the TV show that was airing at the time in the early 60s when I was about that old. It just caught my imagination in a way that I couldn't explain. It scared me, but it titillated me and it obsessed me. And my own family were rather conservative about television watching and they wouldn't, my father wouldn't have allowed me to watch the show. Maybe I was, was about seven at the time, so he wouldn't have permitted that. And it was on, you know, I think at nine o'clock on a Friday night when I was supposed to be in bed. So I would work out sleepover dates with other boys whose families were more uh, liberal about that kind of stuff. Oh, that's awesome. And, and we'd watch the episodes. And I, I barely missed one, you know, in the several, what, three or four seasons, just by engineering those kinds of uh, sleepover oh, that's so, days. That's very clever. I, I will say, similarly, my sister, who for some weird reason loved liver, I would always, <laughs> we could get what we wanted for our birthday when she wanted liver. We would always try to get invited to other people's houses to eat on her birthday <laughs> to avoid liver. So okay, there's smart. a uh, childhood plotting mechanism in, mm -hmm. in the brain. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned the Twilight Zone. Rod Serling was a, an extraordinary craftsman of television and storytelling in a way that was very subversive. He was able to cover so many uh, really interesting topics by making it aliens, but it was about racism or, yeah. you know, it was it was really quite a place for you to have been absorbing that content. It, it was, and I mean, since you mentioned that, I think I learned early without realizing that I was learning it, was that stories that were compelling, or at least that compelled me on, on a deep emotional level were all allegorical. You know, they were never simply what appeared on the surface in the narrative. They reflected a deeper psychological and cultural societal kind of problems and questions. Put on the puppet show in front of the king and make yeah. fun of the king while you're doing it yeah. where he doesn't realize. <laughs> right. And, and that's how they got past all the CBS censors at the time. Well, you mentioned studying creative writing in college. Who was the poet that was your mentor or teacher at the time? Um, it was a man named Thomas Gunn, British poet, but he, but he taught me prose. 
I studied with him at UC Berkeley in my senior year. And I, I always felt for a poet, he was a great teacher of prose. Well, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about poets is that they work with universal themes. So they're very good at premise building because they stay on a, a topic like love conquers all or whatever that is. Thematically, it really does help center a story if you're writing on themes. I never really tried to make sense of why it was. I felt also it was kind of just endemic to his personality. And I didn't know much about him. Like he said in the old days, you couldn't just go online and dig into somebody's background in any way, or even go to the library and do that. And it was only after his death that I read an essay by Edmund White about, and it was sort of a tribute to Tom Gunn. But it turns out that he was very, he was gay. He was sort of interested in the erotic and he was interested in drugs too. I think he was an amphetamine addict actually. But in a weird way, a lot of his interests just sort of coincided with my own at that time, which was 1975. So whatever stories I handed in, even if I was afraid that they were maybe a little bit um, inappropriate or transgressive, just weird, dark, whatever, they didn't seem to phase him. He liked them. Mm -hmm. So that was a big plus you know, for me just to run into a guy like that. Yeah, if you feel safe actually writing what you're feeling or thinking about, it sort of opens the door to so many possibilities. I read a Neil Simon memoir recently about all the phases of his life that he was writing about. And all of those moments were moments in his life that he was working out on the page in some ways. And there's nostalgia in there, but there's therapy and there's having the dialogues built out. I imagine it's quite a bit different when you start to enter Batman worlds and other worlds. I mean, it's there's still core humanity problems, but sort of you get a license to go a lot further with it. Am I right or wrong about that? No, no, you're absolutely right. Well, again, it depends on the Batman movie. I mean, I work with Tim Burton on Batman Returns, and Tim has this, I, I think, a very similar kind of view of the world that I do, which is that it, it tends to be kind of nightmarish, the world we find ourselves in. But not dystopian, right? It's nightmarish in that all that everything is looming all the time. Yeah, it's not dystopian in that you're not externally on the brink of apocalypse, but every character in the, you know, in the movie is uh, personally on the brink of a personal apocalypse or breakdown or has already snapped. Do you know what I mean? And that, I think that's Tim's view, it, probably a little more excessive than, than my own in that regard. But just prior working to him, I'd been working with Scorsese on Cape Fear, and it was the same thing. You know, you just couldn't go too far with either of those guys. I would write stuff that struck me as being really potentially dubious, questionable, dark, disturbing. And, and they were like, do more, like expand that scene. Let's see more of that. I like that. You know, I, I couldn't seem to scare them. So that was really encouraging as a, as a writer. But it never took you to a place where it was too dark for you. Did you say to them, I feel like this is too far, or they would never disagree with that? I would occasionally pull back a little. I mean, there were, there were areas in which I was a little more sort of felt responsible, um, you know, making work that was going to be seen by a big audience, a wide audience, an audience maybe of younger people too. I mean, you're always aware of that, I think. And you don't, there's, there's a degree to which you don't want, you want to intrigue people and, and scare them, but you don't want to kind of corrupt them necessarily. Do you know what I mean? If you felt, if I felt sometimes that we, were, we had gone too far, I would express it. I wouldn't necessarily refuse to do it. I would want to have the conversation. Right. Well, I think what's fascinating about Cape Fear as a story 
is the idea that you have this menacing Robert De Niro coming out of jail, but at the same time, it's that each of the characters is uh, falling apart in their own way. The Nick Nolte character is cheating and dealing with his world. The daughter is coming of age and attracted to this sort of rebel. I mean, everybody's unfolding and you kind of don't know who's the worst for it in some ways. No, you're absolutely right. That that was the first thing I did when Spielberg sent me the movie. He was the pro- originally going to direct, and once he withdrew from directing, he stayed on as producer. But he sent me the original movie, you know, from 1960, and I, I wasn't that in- taken with it. You know, it just seemed kind of cardboard. Who was it, Robert Mitchum, or who was the? Yeah, Mitchum was played the part that De Niro plays. Um, Gregory Peck plays the Nick mm-hmm. Nolte role. It had no psychological dimension to it. You know, Mitchum was simply a bad guy. Um, Peck was a good guy, and Peck wasn't his lawyer as as I made him in the remake he was just a guy he actually had witnessed uh, the attempted rape that Mitchum was so he didn't incarcerate him or he wasn't a part of uh, other than implicitly having been the guy that was able to identify him yeah he identifies him he gives testimony in court that gets Mitchum incarcerated but everything he does is is strictly legit i twisted it so that he actually did something unethical as a lawyer and buried a piece of evidence so he was really complicit in in something bad and obviously de niro goes way too far he's justified sam bowden the nick nolte character had let him down had been unprofessional well that makes the story obviously so much more complex and also complicated for the viewer to say ooh. Well, I mean, in some ways, and and when somebody with mental issues or something feels justified or is yeah. stuck on a thing. And, now, and is justified. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting thing that I did read. I don't know if it's true or not, but that Robert De Niro had his teeth ground down to the tune of $5,000 or something to look more menacing. And then when it was over, he paid like 20 grand to get his teeth fixed in 4K fear. That may be true. I never heard that one. I like that. I hope he did. I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, when I first met him to talk about the movie, it's about a year before we made the movie, uh, I went up to his loft and he, I was expecting Robert De Niro, as we know, know him from uh, Raging Bull, let's say, or Taxi Driver. And I found a guy that was a little, a little overweight, a little flaccid, a little, he, he didn't look muscular and he didn't seem edgy. And I was a little taken aback and I thought, oh, is he just sort of getting into middle age now? And maybe he's not right anymore for the role. I was concerned. You know, then I started working with him once Scorsese came on, and I realized he was now on this physical exercise regimen that was really intense. And in fact, when I met him, he was still shooting a Penny Marshall movie called Awakenings, in which he played a patient suffering from like a nervous degenerative disease. And and that's exactly why the his aspect was so the way I found it, so alarmingly sort of placid. He was still in that role. Then he went very far in the opposite direction and trained four hours a day for, for the role. Well, and I understand he transformed himself for the boxing movie, for Aging Bull, he put on all this weight. And right. I mean, you know, so obviously as an actor, he goes wherever he knows needs to go for the part. Yeah. I did hear that Cape Fear was originally developed by Steven Spielberg, who mm. decided it was too dark for him. So he traded it to Scorsese to get Schindler's list back. That's a really amazing behind the scenes thing that that kind of exchange happens on a, at a director level or. Yeah. I mean, I think I got lucky there really because, uh, well, first of all, Spielberg went on to, to make a pretty good movie in Schindler's list, but I, I feel like Scorsese delivered a cape fear that was darker and more 
and, and what a great team with De Niro. I mean, when you put those two guys together, you know there's going to be fireworks. Oh, sure. And so when you were working on the script, were you involved as it continued? Were you an on-script or on-site writer? Yeah, I was I was the only writer on the on the movie. And I, I went to Cape, I mean, I went down to Fort Lauderdale where they shot the film and stayed for months. In fact, I was the first writer that Scorsese ever allowed on set. And ever since then, apparently he, he encourages his writers. He saw advantages because oftentimes that's not an invitation that writers always get. You know, many times they're left in the dark after they turn over the foundational blueprint of the work. Right. And I'd been warned in advance that that would, would be the case with Marty. And so I, I had already given up hope that that would happen. But then, you know, we got along very well and um, the two of us worked together. And then I asked him one day if I could come and watch just for the first few weeks. And at first he was very hesitant about it. Then he, he sort of, I was there like one day at a time. And then eventually he was just, screw it, come sit next <laughs> to me at the monitor. And I stayed for four months. And then, he would, and then he had me in the cutting room later Wow! to try to make little edits because he was trying to bring down the runtime to two hours without cutting scenes. So he would ask me to help him just find dialogue interchanges that we could trim out. That must have been really great for later when you were having a director's seat yourself in other things to have been through each stage of that process. It was brilliant. Yeah, it was fantastic. I was extremely lucky. Are you often working on multiple projects at once or are you a one at a time guy? Uh, no, I mean, I think at the height of my screenwriting career, I was juggling, like I think all writers do, not because we, we plan to, but because projects sort of languish. You know, you'll work on something that, that seems to be a go movie and then the actor falls out or the actor or actress needs an extension because he or she is making another picture that's gone over. You know, there's a hundred different reasons or the, or the financing falls through or there's this regime change at a studio. And suddenly you find that, you know, you're juggling three at once. And it can be terrifying, actually, when you realize you're in a position like that because it's, it's not, not of your doing, but, it's, but there you are. How do you keep your focus? Like, how do you separate a multiple projects? At, and again, now probably you have the privilege of being a little bit more one-on-one -on -one because of your success story. No, it never. That's never really the case because um, schedules just continually shift. So it's it's an ongoing thing you have to learn how to. I mean, on Cape Fear it was particularly nerve-wracking because here I was working with Scorsese. And I had a, another film in pre-production called Final Analysis at the time that John Borman, British director, brilliant guy, legendary director, was the director of Final Analysis. And he was all, that film was set in New York. Borman and I were flying to New York to scout locations and meet some of the characters that the film was loosely based on. At the same time, Marty and I were prepping Cape Fear. And I knew that Borman and, and Scorsese knew each other. Borman was older. He's almost, you might say, the next generation older than uh, Scorsese, but they, they had a, a great you know, mutual respect. But I, I knew that I couldn't let either of them know what, that I was two-timing them. I just knew that wasn't going to fly with either of them. And it was kind of like a French bedroom farce. I mean, I was sort of like, hey, you know, John, I, I had little kids then, and they were in New York for, for this. And I had ex an excuse to leave a, a meeting, and then I was like rushing over to Scorsese's office. And it was it really, I mean, it really had me um, in, a, in a sweat swinging doors and hiding under beds right? <laughs> you have to be sure in a good kind of. french farce you got to be sure the doors swing both ways so you can get in yeah. and out quickly yeah <laughs> i was afraid the doors were only swinging one way i really i had a few sleepless nights unfortunately actually Borman 
was taken off the project by Warners. But the uh, relief of that was that I got to go back to working exclusively for Marty until Final Analysis came back online like six months later or something. But weren't you more also invested in Final Analysis because that was one of your first screenplays? It was my first. It was your very first screenplay? So I imagine that was a darling that you wanted to see come to life versus an adaptation. No, I think it's really more, you get more invested in whichever project you feel is the stronger one, whether it's original or an adaptation. Cape Fear seemed to have, there was more excitement around it just because of Scorsese De Niro. Well, well, let's just talk about the mechanics of the difference for somebody who was maybe listening who doesn't know. They hear Mm. the Academy Awards, best original screenplay, best adaptation. It's a real art to be able to adapt projects. And I know you've done quite a few of those. So when you take a piece of work that comes from other literature or something, how do you approach that as an adapter? My first move is always to go back to the origin of the material. For instance, like on Cape Fear, as I said, I watched the movie, but the movie didn't left me cold. And I originally said it, I wasn't interested. Once I was signed up to do it, I went back to the John D. MacDonald novel, which is called The Executioners, which came out in the 50s. And it's, it's very different than either movie of Cape Fear. It's a very small, southern, um, gritty, like crime melodrama. It has the same basic premise of an angry con who's been released from prison and wants revenge. The dimensions of it are much more intimate. It's really a, you know, what they call in Hollywood, mano a mano kind of story. But it's also at a very, you know, it's, it's not looking for big thrills. It's just about the, um, just the horror of a situation like that in a, in a very mundane sort of way. And it ends in a mundane way. You know, there's no big set piece ending. Um, Sam Bowden, the hero, has an opportunity to shoot Max Cady dead. It's funny, there wasn't a lot I could take from it for the movie. What it reminded me was, for all of the the fireworks in the film, literally too, because there are actual fireworks in uh, Cape Fear, but for all of that and for all of the big production set pieces, it is an intimate story of a family, a helpless kind of family that gets horribly enmeshed in the psychosis of an angry man. And actually, it's funny. So the book ends with a scene where Bowden has shot Katie dead. And he's, I think the, the detective is somewhere nearby. They've, they've sort of laid in wait to ambush him. And they gingerly approach Katie to be sure he's dead. And he's just lying there. And he is, in fact, dead. And it, it couldn't be more ordinary in that sense. Nothing glamorous about it or thrilling. He's just lying there and he looks diminished in death. He just looks like a, a dead body. And there's a beautiful paragraph that McDonald writes about Sam's kind of horror at realizing just the ordinariness of death that he's turned this man into clay, I think is what he says. And so I was kind of um, struck by that. And I thought maybe after all of the Sturm und Drang of the movie and the, you know, the really um, elevated and enlarged melodrama that we were doing, that it would all come down to this one very human moment that would be sort of devastating maybe. And I, so I, I described De Niro as essentially just lying there dead, looking smaller and almost pitiful. And it was the one thing that De Niro asked me to, to get rid of in the script. He didn't want that. He didn't want the audience to ever see him dead. I mean, he was fine with dying at the end. He knew that that was his end. But, and at first I thought, is that like an actor's vanity? Like he just doesn't want to be brought down to earth, literally. 
exposed as just an ordinary mortal man. But no, I realized later, he, I think he felt the audience didn't want to see that, that that would be a, a come down from the heights that we had built uh, over the two hours. The air would kind of be sucked out of the movie. And maybe he was right. I don't know. I took it out. And, you know, we see him go under, and that's the last we see of him. Right, right, just as he goes under the water. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, you know he, you know he's gone. You know like he's, he's gone. not coming back in Cape Fear too. <laughs> right. I think he had taken pains to sort of be of a mythical size. His characterization was larger than life, and he just didn't want the rug pulled out from under all of that for the audience. I think he felt that that would be just um, a come down, a, a disappointment. And maybe he was right. Anyway, I didn't have any problem with it. I just took it out. No, and it is interesting. It's not like being shot and being taken out like it's not the good guy bad guy ending in the fact that he's menacing as he goes underwater yeah yeah he's terrifying he's, he's speaking in tongues it's like terrifying. yeah it's the thing nightmares are made of and i think that Absolutely. movie is is meant to be that it's a you know you just feel if you were a family any movie where a normal suburban family's world is suddenly every turn of events you're afraid of your own sprinkler head or whatever that's amazing writing one of the things that's interesting and I like about a good writer is when they use a good character descriptive, like a quick one-liner to introduce somebody coming into a scene. Because writers who aren't as savvy will sometimes write a big paragraph and describe how everybody looks and what they're wearing and all of that kind of stuff. I was reading the Lost Superman script online mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. and I saw a few different descriptives where you describe Lois Lane as that her beauty only surpassed by her ambition. And there in a sentence, you understand she's attractive, she's smart, she's going places. And that line is all you need to get in. Yeah. Plus, I was trying to sound like a feminist. Yes, I see. I, I understand. <laughs> put, put ambition. Well, but Lex Luthor, you described as being a boomer love child of a guy, Robert Vesco, who was a financier or something and Leona Helmsley. So again, that reflects back to the <laughs> era that you wrote it. But what I love about those kinds of lines is they don't show up on film. They're never seen by anybody else because they're written, but they're a big hint to the casting director, to the costumer, yeah, exactly. to the director to go, oh, I get it. And the studio. Yeah. But but that's a very artful thing to do. So obviously you you're conscious of, of making that choice. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I advise at the Sundance Institute and often I will talk to the, they call them fellows, the people that come to advise. Yeah, they'll, they will describe a character's facial features. And I always explain that's for a novelist to do because you're God when you're writing a novel, you, you're casting your story with characters who don't exist. You can describe them any way you want to, but in the world of film, obviously, you're, you're going to be looking for a pool of actors who uh, your actor may not look like that description. So describe what his or her inner being feels like, not what it, not what it looks like. But I do want to talk about the infamy of this Superman script. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Ruin my Thursday. Go ahead. No, no, no. You can <laughs> say what you want or you can say, I, you know. No, no, it's fine. I'm proud that I survived Superman Lives. I don't know the backstory other than the fact that I know it is sort of famously a movie that was being written and didn't get made and was mysterious and was out there. And so I was yeah. surprised to find that if you went on Superman's homepage, you can see the first draft of that script written by you. That's one yeah. of the beauties of the yeah. internet. It's the curse and the reward, which is that any 
horrible review you ever had is out there, but also some stuff that would never be seen. I've, I've had things pop up from a sitcom pilot that is long dead that somebody posted the trailer on Facebook and people go, uh -huh. why didn't this ever get made? I was like, well, it got made. Right. It just never got seen. <laughs> so, right. And that, well, and that happens a lot. It happens with the writing process, the making process. I mean, to me, it's a miracle that anything makes it to the screen in terms of the process and the people and the hands that it changes. You know, the more auteur it is, the more likely it's close to what the vision is meaning the director directs something, but the editor edits it, and then the studio sends it to somewhere to be voted on, and then they take a scene. I mean, it's collaborative, but it's also, it's like 10 people raising a baby. Right. When you're writing a superhero movie for the studio. So my relationship with Tim began with Batman Returns. And you're talking about Tim Burton in reference to Batman Returns, which was the Michael Keaton one. Yeah, it was the second Michael Keaton one. Yeah, the last and the last Michael Keaton. I didn't know Tim Burton, but they Warner's called me and said, I didn't even know they were making a sequel to Batman, and I hadn't even seen the first Batman at that point. They said they were six weeks out from production, and they had a good script by Daniel Waters, but they were concerned about the Penguin. They felt like he didn't have a master plan; he was just running around making trouble, sort of creating chaos wherever he could in Gotham City. And they were and Warner's wanted a larger more exciting, maybe interesting, frightening master plan. Was I interested in trying to figure one out? And I said, sure, send me the script. And they did. And I thought about it for a little while. And then I came up with this idea that I saw a parallel to the book of Exodus and the story of Moses in the, in the prologue to the Penguin story in uh, Dan Waters' script. And that his parents, they take his crib and they stick it in a river and it floats downstream and they sort of say goodbye to him forever. So I thought about Moses in the rushes and all of that. And I thought, so when Penguin grows up, he decides to take revenge on all of the firstborn of Gotham City. And it becomes this sort of like Passover, 10 plagues story. And <laughs> he had a kind of group called the Red Triangle Circus Gang that was Penguin's kind of bunch of thugs with acrobatic skills that would break into the children's bedrooms at night, kidnap them and take them away. Which is fun. It's fun to have that kind of license. Yeah. So I pitched that. I went into the studio the next day. I pitched it. I think that the execs were a little taken aback by it, but Tim loved it. And he said, let's do it. And we did it. It turns out kids were very frightened by it. There was a lot of complaints from parents and parent, of group, parent groups <laughs> about it. They said it was irresponsible and reckless. And kids were having nightmares. And then Hasbro, I think was the company, or whatever the toy company was that had all of the licensing, were also upset about it because they said the kids were staying away from the movie, blah, blah. And yes, the box office had fell off somewhat from the original Batman, but that always happens in the sequel. It still did big business. It was a good movie. And then, I don't know how many years later, five, six, seven years later, Tim asked me to come back on uh, when he was signed up to do Superman. Superman Lives. There was a script by Kevin Smith and Tim didn't want to use that. He wanted to start again. So we sat down and we started working on it. But I think that because of what our history was with Batman Returns, I think the studio was on alert right from the start. <laughs> and they, they wouldn't sort of give us the same liberties that they, narratively, that they gave us, you know, we didn't have that kind of freedom on Superman. And it was a bigger movie. It was even more expensive. And they're their investment in the Superman franchise is much more valuable. It was considered to be such at the time. So they were breathing down our necks. And then they assigned John Peters, who had been Tim Burton's uh, producer on the first Batman, 
to be our producer on Superman Lives. And I didn't know at the time that Tim had been sort of traumatized by John Peters being his producer on Batman. And one of the reasons he had insisted on shooting the movie in London was to get away from John Peters, just put a physical distance between the two of them. And um, I didn't know any of this. But I soon learned that there was a history between them that wasn't that healthy. And so once we started working with John Peters on Superman, I mean, Tim and I and Nick Cage, who was signed to play Superman, had all sorts of wonderful meetings where we blue-skied lots of great ideas about the movie um, without any interference from the studio. But then reality set in, and we, were, you know, we started meeting with John, and John was kind of speaking on behalf of Warner Brothers and of the toy company. I think it was Hasbro. And so... We, before too long, we found that we were reverse engineering our story to fit the toys that had already been licensed for big sums of money that Warners was not going to back away off of, you know, just to give us the freedom to carve out our own narrative. So, you know, we tried as, as hard as we could for as long as we could to cooperate with the whole corporate push. I mean, to me, it felt like we were building a big building with substandard materials. Do you know what I mean? Because our priorities were completely out of whack after. Well, that's, that's one of the very complicated things about a screenwriter's relationship is that commerce and corporation are your partner in the arts. I, I went through it with television and oftentimes it's the break for the ads, but you begin to realize in television and not the new streaming versions that you get on Netflix and so forth. But when you're on network television, they are worried about selling the Wheaties and the Nikes and so forth. And the commercials are what are important. The added value is we're going to throw this show in for you. Like in the room, yeah, you're talking right. about two That's, different things. Right. That's the Cracker Jack uh, toy. You know, right. It's, it's the show. So, it, it, you know, at least at Cracker Jacks in the beginning, the prize was decent and the snack was decent. <laughs> yeah. Right? But eventually it goes the other way around. And, yeah. You know, it starts to be where you say reverse engineer, but they're engineering get-go. They're just working against the idea that you're trying to create. Like story and art want to unfold in a certain way. They don't need to break at this exact time for the purpose of the Raisin brand. Oh, exactly. So we were, you know, bending ourselves into pretzel yeah. shapes. And I and imagine your arm was twisted pretty hard if they had already produced the product. If the plush and the merchandise oh, yeah. and the toy figure is there, we got to have this guy in the movie and he's got to be worth buying. Yeah, I mean, John would walk into these meetings and say, um, the, the last scene has to take place on a skull ship. And I was like, what's a skull ship? And, and we have to write in a Thanagarian something beast. I mean, I didn't even know what these things were. Right. Because some toy designer had created some cool thing yeah. and they thought they were going to sell a lot of them and they were going to be left with a warehouse full of them if you didn't deliver. Yeah, exactly. And because of... I think Warner's residual feeling that we had screwed them on Batman Returns with the with the kidnapping plot of the firstborn of Gotham City. They weren't going to give us that kind of license anymore. <laughs> well, the two of you were notorious at that point. But, <laughs> but I will say, and this is for the fellows that are listening, I, I'll just reference the folks back to Sundance, but any young writers, that this happens sometimes, and it's very evident in something like the movie Cats or Mamma Mia, which is based on an album from ABBA. In Cats, Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote a musical based on a poem of the description of a series of cats with no story whatsoever. 
and the original family gives them the rights but says you can't change anything so it's not gonna go anywhere like it's the emperor's new clothes of nights out because you're like oh oh we're gonna meet all these characters and then something's gonna happen no nothing's gonna happen you know yeah. just because of the circumstances the way yeah. you've you've decided already we're gonna put this together with the sum of the parts yeah. i uh, i one time talked to uh Alec Berg, who was a Seinfeld writer and went on to direct a number of things, but he directed The Cat in the Hat. Uh-huh. And he was at the Austin Film Festival and we had this great panel discussion. And I said, I have one question for you The Cat in the Hat, why? <laughs> and, and he said, That's Listen. The most threatening question in the world. Well, I watched it and I also knew him a little bit. And so I thought, well, I'll put him on the spot. And he said, Look, you don't set out to make the worst movie of all time. That's <laughs> yeah. not your plan. Very few people do. Yeah. Right. Because people always want to blame everybody. <laughs> but he said, and I don't remember the number, but he said, We were talking about an original book that had only 39 words in it that were constantly being repeated. <laughs> yeah. There's the recipe for best adaptation. Right. Similar to sort of the trouble that you had with Batman Returns was he said, so we cast Mike Myers as the cat and we made this thing, which turns out we didn't make for kids. The cat in the hat <laughs> book. These are the things you realize on opening day. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh, was I oh this isn't for kids. And also it's not for adults. Those are the two people that aren't interested in this movie. <laughs> it's like that great line about well, the movie didn't perform well in cer- certain markets like Earth. <laughs> right. Don't know if you've ever heard that. One. <laughs> I haven't, but but I understand it. But you'll never forget it. Now. Yeah. It's like when they search for the Barton Fink feeling. If you saw that mm. movie. They yes, just yes. so hilarious to watch John Turturro where they're lifting Barton Fink up and they want that Barton Fink feel. And then when they finally get him, it's like, no, we want something like Barton Fink, but not you, you know, <laughs> yeah. anything but the real Barton. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you begin to feel that way in these meetings. Sometimes you go, yeah, but you ask me to whitewash the fence this way. I'm I'm helping you. And I realized I had a partner that we would take meetings in Columbia, places like that. And afterwards I said, nobody wants to do laundry together. This isn't like we all put our ideas into one thing and wash it until it turns gray and then nobody wants to wear it. I go, somebody's going to have to speak up for a good story or what's the point of it? feels like that's the armature of everything. It's all decorating if you don't get a good story. Somebody has to, but very few people do because you're putting too much on the line when you do. You know, they learn bad lessons in Hollywood. Like, keep quiet about that and just hope for the best. And that, that never works, by the way. Hoping for the best just... Right, hope for the best. It's not effective strategy. It, it feels like in pitches and in meetings where they want you to beat out a story sometimes, that, that and this isn't all executives, there's some very smart executives and there's some smart development people, but it feels like the industry system is built around the art of saying no so you don't have to take responsibility for saying yes you know otherwise they gotta pull the trigger and spend the money and then it might be my fault yeah no they say that executives never get fired for saying no although i guess it's happened it has but they generally get paid still that's the frustrating part Mm -hmm. do you have a approach that you might advise a young writer or something in how to keep a story pitch concise and dynamic and is there something that you would sort of give an essence of without them getting too many flavors going? I mean, I think my most successful pitches were short and reflected my enthusiasm, as well as just a clear, simple view of what the thing was. 
and kind of refusing to answer too many follow-up questions, I think is a really good habit to get into because you can just get drawn into, I mean, by the time you stumble out of there an hour later, you realize you've contradicted yourself 50 times and obscured what the essence of the project was just by trying to solve their own insecurity. Accommodating and compromising is a fairly losing combination. Pitch the thing, tell them the 10 minutes that you essence of it and assure them that you know how to do it and you can't wait to do it. And then you're out of there. I love the phrases. There's so many great Hollywood phrases. We're going to stick a pin in that. You know, like they're going to put it up on the board like it's a butterfly or we're going to raise that up the flagpole and see who salutes it. They have all these great catchphrases for mm. not saying yes. Right. They yeah. do. <laughs> That's their business. The mistake I think people sometimes make is they'll figure that, oh, it's perfect for, I'll use the example of Blumhouse. It's a horror film. It's contained. It's a perfect Blumhouse movie. So you go to Blumhouse and you pitch it with great expectations. And then their executive, um, a guy named Cooper, who's very smart, by the way, will t then spend the rest of the meeting tell you, telling you why it's not a Blumhouse movie. And he'll point by point explain it. And it's kind of fascinating. You walk out realizing, well, that was a defeat. Yeah. A humiliating <laughs> defeat. Now, the way to avoid that is not to get too focused on here's the perfect producer for it. Here's the perfect studio. The perfect producer, the perfect studio is the one that responds to your pitch. So if you can set up six pitches and go into each one and give your pitch and don't wait around for their suggestions or their explanations for why it doesn't fit their template for what's a great project for them. That way you're not, you know, compromising before you've even sat down. I think that's the way really to keep your pitch intact. You know, which is important. You, you can't start writing a script that's already been sabotaged. Really good point. You're the steward of the story, right? Mm -hmm. Your intent is to protect what you come in. And look, there's always uh, an approach or an angle as you're in development. We all know that that happens. And sometimes it happens to accommodate an actor or any number of things. But oh, sure. in the beginning, if the armature is not strong, you've got nothing to hang anything on. Yeah. And I think I've been in, in the position in my career of having had a pitch that I really believed in turned down pretty much everywhere. Or if I, I saw the trend, I saw that it was getting turned down. And rather than expose it all over town, I would just withdraw it and write it as a spec because I believed in it. And I thought, you know what? They're not getting in the pitch. After four attempts, I see that. But I still love the story. So I would just then spend two months writing the screenplay. And, and I have had some success doing that and then selling it as a spec. I mean, it's obviously it's a riskier way to go, but it's, um, it's more gratifying, certainly, because you end up writing the, the thing that you set out to write. You know, and then it's judged on the merits, not on the pitch. Right. Well, you have entered many projects that are in progress or have been through a few writers. So that must take some diplomacy as well, because I know... Most people don't know when they look uh, at the credits and there's an and or there's an Amberson that that actually means something, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Oh, the difference between the two, yeah. Yeah, one means that you were co-writers and you worked on it together. That's the ampersand. Ampersand, right. Mm -hmm. And if it's spelled mm -hmm. out A-N-D, it means the other guy wrote one version and then you wrote a version, but enough of both people stays in that they get credit? Yeah, the and, the and means that the two people on either end of it hate each other. Yes, that's your 
<laughs> they have to, right. It really shouldn't say and, it should say versus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a cage match, yeah. I imagine that happens. People have interviewed or something. So, oh, you collaborated with this guy on the film. And I, I remember after a partner and I wrote the Amberson kind of a screenplay, and we wrote multiple drafts for somebody, they said, and it was sort of a personal story about our lives. And then they go, we know who could write this better. And they, and they take it to somebody else and they wave goodbye to you. And you go, okay. Uh, uh, this will be interesting. And we were wondering, do we even want to read this? At some point, you can't be invested. That's an adoption agency game. You just got to let the other person raise the child. And But you have to read it because then you're going to arbitrate for credit. And you need to know how much of your stuff is still there. Yeah. I mean, that's, isn't that funny? Because that's not what we set out to do as a writer. So uh, I'm going to bring up another film you can say if you want to talk about it or not talk about it. But it it just popped up. I'm reading the bio, uh, a biography of Mike Nichols. And so in it, there's a mention of the movie Wolf. And I think you came on, it was based on a book, if I'm not mistaken. No, uh, but I know why you think that. Jim Harrison wrote the original version. And Jim Harrison was a very respected novelist. His first novel was called Wolf. But years later, he wrote <laughs> okay. a screenplay called Wolf that has nothing to do with the novel. Interesting, yeah. So that's a little trivia. It was an original screenplay. He and Jack Nicholson were good buddies, and they were very good drinking buddies. And one night, this was explained to me by producer Doug Wick. One night they were in Jim's cabin in Montana drinking all night heavily. And apparently at dawn, they both stumbled out of Jim's cabin and started howling like wolves on their knees. I mean, they could barely stand. And then they decided that that maybe was the basis of a movie that Jack could star in about a man who turns into a wolf. And so Jim started writing this screenplay, and I think he wrote many versions of it. It was set up at Sony. I don't know when Mike came on board, but they sent it to me and said, did they need a, like, they need a professional screenwriter at this point? So I read the script, and I found it very Dense and it read more like a novel than a, a screenplay, I thought. But obviously, you know, it was going to star Jack Nicholson turning into a wolf. I could see the potential there. And so I signed on to do it. And I spent about a year working with Mike. Uh, trying to make that work? or Yeah, I mean, we kept the basic premise. I changed. He was in, in the script that I was given. Uh, Will, the uh, hero that Nicholson played, Will Randall, was a white shoe lawyer in New York City. And I thought the idea of a lawyer turning into a wolf is actually kind of redundant. Right, right. A shark turns to a wolf and then turns back to a shark. Yeah, exactly. So I, I proposed to Mike that we make him something that, that seemed like more of a transition, which would be a, an, a book editor, somebody literary, who then sort of finds his animal instincts. Which Mike must have liked because he's a very cerebral guy. and He liked it. He liked the idea. And I knew a little bit about that world. I, I didn't really know much about the white shoe law world. But I also thought that we've seen how many movies that are set in that milieu. So, and I did have some inside experience in publishing. So I, I proposed that and Mike loved that. I just, that's how sort of the first big change we made. And we worked together for quite a long time on it. I think we made a lot of progress with it. Right toward the end, he, I guess I also quit the movie twice. <laughs> that's another one of my go-to moves is to quit, is to quit movies when I can't, when I 
But take note, anybody listening, maybe you could give them an exit line they can use. I'm out of here. <laughs> Sony asked me to come back twice, and I did. And I, I don't regret that I did. Um, but it was important emotionally for me to quit a couple of times. Too. But, you know, because when you're on one of these for too long, it, it just becomes such a grind. And I like Mike. We got along great. But, uh, you know, at a certain point, it's just ridiculous. And also, when you know that somebody like him is always going to bring on a friend to do like a last pass. So Elaine May was his old partner. And big surprise, he wanted her to come in and write mostly stuff around uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Developing the female character, yeah. I said, great, <laughs> I love it. And, and I got to leave for the third and final time. But it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult project. It was fun working with Mike for the most part. I mean, he, he's a brilliant man. I just read that long biography. I was in awe of his genius. I mean, I, I only knew him through his work, really. I mean, I had heard stories about him. But again, back in those days, there was no internet. You couldn't just start digging into these characters and learn whether any of the myths that you'd heard about them had any basis in reality, any of that. So I always just took them as I found them. But my Nichols was involved in so many great storytelling moments and yeah. Right around this, he walked away from Remains of the Day to when he worked on Wolf. So he said in the biography that we were tearing up the walls while they were setting the silverware over on Remains of the Day or something, you know. I think he was very um, ultimately disheartened about Wolf because Jack didn't deliver the kind of commitment that he thought he could expect from Nicholson, given their history together and the things they'd already you know, it would be as if De Niro showed up on a Scorsese movie and just phoned it in or something. Apparently, I wasn't around much during the shoot of Wolf, but apparently Nicholson was in a lousy mood. He had to show up early and spend hours in hair and makeup and all that stuff. It's no fun every day. And then all the reshoots, it just dragged on too long. And I also think that basketball season had begun and he wanted to watch, you know, Lakers games more than actually leave his trailer to actually shoot scenes from the movie. So he became very grumpy. Maybe it was in that book, I don't remember, but I read that the producer, Douglas Wick, had said it was basically a werewolf movie where Willie Loman eats spinach. Mm. The idea that it was a regular guy, a normal yeah. guy who has thoughts and whatever, and is really mm. just discovering the animal instinct of himself or something. Yeah, so, that's, that's all it was. And I like that. I mean, I like the simplicity of that. Can we talk a little bit about your earlier career when you were a journalist? You wrote oh, sure. uh, about maybe for Rolling Stone and Cream mm -hmm. and Circus and some of those. Yeah, um, I was a rock writer for like three years. Yeah, so you were a music dude. You chose that, right? You were, Was there a specific kind of band you followed or musical genre that you bought? I am a you know musician. I write, uh, I mean, I play guitar and keys and I, I write songs. I've done that all my life since I was 13, actually. I guess out of college, I was looking around for something to do, a way to make money. And I realized I had this encyclopedic knowledge of rock and roll at the time. So I'm talking about like 1976. And I knew somebody who had like a fly-by-night rock magazine he was putting out that didn't last more than a couple of issues. But he assigned me to do a, a story. I lived down in Soho and it was cheap to live in Soho. And he said, there's a bar on the Bowery near you and you can just walk over there tonight. It's like 10 blocks from where you live. And there's a band. He told me the name of the band. I thought it was a Mexican band, actually, like a mariachi band. And the bar was CBGB's and the band was the Ramones. <laughs> and uh, I, of course, I'd never heard of either. They were very obscure, both of them, the bar and the band. 
I wrote about them. I was one of the first to interview the Ramones. And, and just by good luck and the fact that I lived where I lived downtown, you know, I ended up writing for Circus and Cream and Rolling Stone, but I ended up covering a lot of those punk bands in their earliest days. So, I, you know, I wrote stories about Talking Heads when they were just a trio straight out of uh, RISD. And I wrote about uh, Blondie and television, you know, all those bands where they were, some of them didn't even have record deals yet. So that was great. Although I felt like, you know, when am I going to hit the big time and write about Kiss? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but it must have been very creatively alive because you're in an area that you want, you're listening to music that's emotionally charged, and then you get to have an influence by your opinion or your interview. There must have been some urgency in the delivery of that information and the response that you would get from it. There was a sense of excitement among like all the other rock writers, and there was a kind of fraternity of them. And there were some, I say fraternity, there were some female writers too. Not, I understand, a, a fellowship as it were. There was a fellowship, and we all felt we were at the right place at the right time. And as you say, that we could promote these bands and sort of sell them to a bigger audience. And I think to some extent we did. But I also will say that I didn't, I didn't really see the way some of those other writers did, that these bands were going to become legendary. I, I, I can't pretend that I did. I thought they were cool. Right. But they seemed amateurish when I first started covering them. They were. I mean, they were playing their first gigs. They were pretty ragged, all of them. They got good, you know, just by going out on tour and playing and recording. You know, there were writers who thought the Ramones literally were going to be the next Beatles. Mm. I never saw that kind of potential for them, but I, I didn't say that out loud because I didn't want to be kicked out of the rock writer <laughs> fraternity. And I liked them and I liked the whole scene. You know, I enjoyed covering the scene. I didn't have that sort of gift of prophecy. I, I had no idea that we'd still be talking about, you know, like my kids think I'm amazing because I interviewed Blondie and Talking Heads and television and Patti Smith and all those people. But they were just like locals at the time, downtowners. You know, and they couldn't have get, gotten arrested like north of Houston Street. Nobody knew right. who they were. Yeah. Well, we talked to Jermaine Rogers, who's a illustrator and a rock poster designer in his early days out of Houston. He said he was making Nine Inch Nails, Foo Fighters, all these various posters and art for folks that went much further back than that, but that it was sort of a trade for tickets to go to the show and the bands were gaining an identity while he was gaining an identity and that collaboration was really getting the vibe going. So I'm always fascinated when these genres cross. Creativity in general is this great transferable thing. Knowing that you have an outlet in music, are there other ways in your life that you have an, a creative outlet that are not in writing or music? Aren't those enough, Pat? Well, it's two more things than I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, writing and, and songwriting, which is very much related to the other kind of write, writing I've done professionally because it's storytelling. It's not as narrative, certainly, but you're trying to create a mood, set a mood, and make the listener or the audience feel a certain way. It's abstract in the sense that you're, you're trying to set a mood, not impart a lesson. You know, It's not di didactic that way. Right. Isn't it also heightened, though, with the element of adding the music, which gives you that emotional part of the journey versus the just the narrative? Oh, yeah, very much. I mean, the two work together brilliantly. And to understand, I think, or to have a sense, as I do of both, I think has probably helped me as a movie writer. Yeah, that's awesome. It really is. And did you ever have a actual band of your own? Oh, yeah. What was the name of the band? My band in the 80s was called The Commotion. 
We were like a new wave act. We played a lot of clubs around Manhattan. We'd play the best clubs like CBGB, but we'd play like on Thursday night at 11 p.m. Do you know? But then I was also the all, only boy in an all-girl band called the X-Dragon Devs. And <laughs> we were much less musically uh, inclined band, but because of, of the women in the group, I think, we got much better gigs and we were paid five times as much as the commotion ever were. So well, that was my other band. And what a great name, the commotion, because then if the sound system isn't great, you're still living up to your promise, right? You, well, hopefully. Or as I like to say, we were called a commotion. We didn't cause one. Okay. <laughs> well, you didn't cause one here today, but I think you caused a stir, which is that I think, I know I, I really appreciate the various things that you shared. Uh, I learned a lot, and I certainly want to go back and watch a little bit more of your work. I look forward to maybe reading one of your novels as well. They can find that stuff all online. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. This has been fun. This is your <laughs> chance to say, I'm out of here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. I'm out of here. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the leadership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty.